Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. There's a saying that art is where you find it. I suppose if you stretch that saying to its ultimate limit, absolutely anything could be considered art. Now, I don't entirely believe that, but I do think that there are things that could be considered art or artful that we don't normally think of as having a place in our standard definition of the fine arts. One of them is garden design, for instance. This is my garden. When I come out here with my coffee in the morning and appreciate the scope, the direction of the design, the way the various plant communities refer to each other, I feel like I'm in a living piece of art, one that I helped to create. You're probably thinking right about now that I've either gone off the deep end or you tuned into the wrong program. Well, you didn't. The creation of an opera by a composer is very much like the creation of any piece of art, even the art of landscape design. The composer will begin with certain limitations, certain givens that he has to accept and work with. The limitations could be in the nature of the story that he has to tell, and the design of the libretto or text will have to conform to those limitations. The composer will then compile groups of themes that will help drive the story musically through the use of various variation techniques. My plant communities are the themes of this garden, and I have variations on those themes throughout the property. A composer will use his themes to unify or gather his opera into one piece so that although it's made up of many disparate parts, it still communicates as a whole work of art. Such was the approach by a French composer when he wrote the subject of today's discussion, an opera based on one of the great monuments of Western literature, a story from Spain told through the music of a French composer. The opera, Don Quixote, by Jules Massenet. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Every opera is made up of many smaller parts. In fact, the word opera is the plural of opus, which means work. So an opera is really a collection of many works that gathered together tell a unified story through song. Just like this garden is a collection of many individual plants and five or six plant communities making up a single whole that makes a unified statement. With that in mind, let's take a closer look at Massenet's Don Quixote starting with the composer. Jules-Émile-Frédéric Massenet was born in 1842, the twelfth and last child of a family with a father who failed at business and a very musical mother. The family moved to Paris when Jules was six, and there he began taking piano lessons from his mother and was eventually deemed talented enough to enter the Paris Conservatoire. In 1863, he won the coveted Prix de Rome and spent two years at the Villa Medici in Italy, working at length on various compositions, but no operas. It wasn't until his incidental music for Les Zirenes and the Oratorio Marie Magdalene that he won some notoriety in music for the theater. In 1876, he received the French Legion of Honor, and in 1878, he was appointed professor of composition at his alma mater, the conservatory. 
After the premiere of Le Roi de Lahore in 1877, his name as an opera composer was assured. Herodiade, Manon, and Lucide soon followed, and they were presented by all the important theaters in Paris, the Théâtre Italien, the Opéra Comique, and the Paris Opéra. But Werther, based on the novel by Goethe, was turned down by the Comique and didn't have its first performance until 1892 when it was presented by the Hofoper in Vienna. These were surely heady times for the young composer, and although there was some resistance in certain theaters to his work, he was always able to find someone somewhere to produce his operas. An extraordinary thing happened to him in 1887. He met a young Californian, a soprano from Sacramento, whose name was Sybil Sanderson. Sybil was evidently a prodigiously talented singer with a high range, her top notes finishing about one whole step above those demanded for the Queen of the Night in Mozart's The Magic Flute. Upon meeting her at the Salon of a Mutual Acquaintance, he decided to revise his opera Manon for her, and then proceeded to write both Esclarmonde and Thais for her before they eventually fell out. Operas that followed, Cendrillon, which is based on Cinderella, Sappho, and Griselidie, only met with modest success, and there was a period of inactivity until Massenet was approached by Raoul Gunzburg, the director of the Monte Carlo opera. Again, the composer came under the spell of yet another singer. This time it was Lucie Arbel, the mezzo-soprano, for whom he wrote roles in Thérèse, Ariane, Bacchus, Roma, and Don Quixote. It's in the context of the Monte Carlo years that we have to place Don Quixote. If it hadn't been for Raoul Gunzburg, the opera probably wouldn't have seen the light of day. One of my responsibilities is to keep the weeds under control for the first year to 18 months so that these beautiful native plants can really take off. It reminds me that the creative work is never really finished. In fact, someone once said that writing is really rewriting. In the same way, composing is really about constant revision, constant cleaning up, refocusing on the theme, keeping things clean, unencumbered, and free of anything extraneous. But let's return to Don Quixote and talk a bit about the man who commissioned it and the singer for whom it was written. Raoul Gunzburg was the director of the Monte Carlo Opera for a record 58 years, from 1893 to 1951. Being intimately tied to the internationally renowned casino, he spent lavishly on his productions and always featured stellar casts. One regular member of those international casts was the great Russian basso Fyodor Shalyapin. Shalyapin is widely considered as one of the greatest Russian singers of the 20th century, whose naturalistic approach to acting revolutionized and modernized the art form. In 1909, Shalyapin traveled to Paris to meet Massenet and to hear the composer play and sing through the score of Don Quixote. He wrote in his memoirs, By the time he had reached the beginning of the last act, I was sobbing so hard that Massenet stopped playing, looked at me, and exclaimed, Shayapin, please, please, calme-toi, control yourself, let me finish. Indeed, the role of Don Quixote was a perfect one for Shayapin, and it was considered by many to be the role with which he was most identified, even more than Boris Godunov. 
In a way, he was working against the libretto of Henri Quint, Massenet's librettist, who was working not from the Cervantes original, but from a rather flimsy play drawn from Cervantes by Jacques Le Lorraine, a contemporary of Massenet. Only three things remained in Le Lorraine's dramatization, the characters of Sancho Panza and Dulcinea, and the episode with the windmills that Quixote imagines are giant monsters. Everything else was, although inspired by Cervantes, made up of whole cloth. So Chaliapin himself went to the real source, read every word of Cervantes, and instilled in his characterization the very essence of Quixote, the idealizing romantic, the dreamer, the lover of the past and the age of chivalry, the foolish knight. Nothing was more striking than Chaliapin's figure at the end of the opera, standing with his back against a tree, the life ebbing out of him, with his arms outstretched and a tender parody of the crucifixion. This image was indelible for anyone who saw it, and a performance in this role by Chaliapin was evidently unforgettable. Don Quixote was a highlight of Massenet's last years, and it had a great success whenever Chaliapin appeared in it. Don Quixote begins in a square outside the house of Dulcinea, a flirtatious and loose woman who's being serenaded by some of her admirers. Don Quixote, an old romantic who imagines himself a heroic knight, and his companion Sancho Panza arrive on the scene, greeted warmly by the townspeople, but with scorn by Dulcinea's admirers. Quixote thinks of Dulcinea as the ideal woman, and he serenades her. One of the admirers challenges him to a duel, but Dulcinea, a kind woman at heart, deflects the skirmish and asks Quixote to go on a quest for her, for her pearl necklace that was stolen from her room. He and Sancho go to the countryside on his quest, and while Quixote tries to compose a new serenade to his beloved, Sancho Panza rails against women in general. They spy a row of windmills, and Quixote sees them as giant monsters to be defeated. To Sancho's dismay, he rides off to do battle. Continuing their quest, they come upon bandits in the mountains. Sancho escapes, but Quixote is surrounded, overwhelmed by their strength, and about to be murdered. Before they can lay a hand on him, though, he sings a simple, beautiful prayer that so shames the thieves that they release him and give him the necklace to take back to Dulcinea. He returns to town triumphant, bears the necklace back to his lady love, and proposes marriage to her. The crowd around them is amused, but she dismisses them, then tenderly as possible tells him that her lot in life is to give her love freely. She wouldn't want him to enter into marriage based on a lie. He's very disappointed, but he thanks her for her honesty and begins to leave. Her guests return and make fun of him, and he sinks into a corner and begins to weep. The faithful Sancho sticks up for him, shames the crowd, and leads his master away to another adventure. In a mountain pass late at night, Quixote is aware that his time has come. He's outlived his usefulness, and it's time to die. With the weeping Sancho at his side, he sees a vision of his beloved Dulcinea before he finally passes away quietly in the night. <laughs> Oh!
I think it'd be great for us to continue our discussion of Don Quixote by talking to my good friend, a resident conductor of San Diego Opera, Karen Keltner. Karen, welcome back. It's Thanks, good to man. have you here. It's good to be here. To start off, I've got to tell you, I purchased a CD of Don Quixote. What a great piece. Isn't it fantastic? It's delightful. It is absolutely charming. The music is wonderful. Tell us a little bit about your experience. I'm in absolute agreement with you. It's, it's amazing. It's an ab- an absolutely beautiful piece, yeah. and one that I'm so looking forward to doing together. I think the audiences are going to be charmed by it. I was, and seduced by it. It's beautiful. Mm. Let's see. The music. It's, it's, it's so very French. Mm. It's ha- The melody lines keep coming at you. Mm-hmm. And when you think, because I, I don't always necessarily, I think of French, you know, refined, moderate, Bien présenté, but I never, until now, was so overwhelmed with what I consider beautiful melodies for everybody who's singing. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's it's lovely, and they're not just little snippets; they're they're evolved. The light motif, of course, which comes and goes. I'm calling it light motif. The serenade. The serenade. Yeah, yes, that's so which gorgeous. I think, I believe, I read Massenet was in some circles criticized for for trying to. I don't know, imitate Wagner in some strange (laughs) way. There's no resemblance whatsoever. Um, But it comes back in various forms, you know, agonizingly melancholic or optimistic or apprehensive. The orchestra is scored pretty regularly, Mm -hmm. heavier than the music really sounds, if you know what I mean. The music to me sounds quite transparent, quite evocative in a very um, clear and, and lucid way, well, but never com- heavy. Let's compare it to Werther, which has a very dark and I think a heavier Heavier sound to it, but I think the orchestras are the same as far as the instrumentation goes. Really? For example, um, and you never, I never hear this as having this many instruments. I think it speaks to the genius of how Massenet put them together in various orchestration combinations. But the winds are all triple. Mm. They all have, the flutes have piccolo, you know, the oboes, English horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three bassoons. There are th- uh, three trumpets. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, a small classic yeah, orchestra. Yeah, that is heavy. But, but they're not all used together, so you never have that sensation. And the various banda combinations, which, some of which we're doing as banda, some of which we're doing from the pit because of the way our, our set and our direction is evolving mm-hmm. are wonderfully exotic without being ridiculous, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We both know of composers who, in, in striving to, to give a flavor of a certain kind, use an orchestration that's not necessarily that persuasive. I mean, we know we're being told this should be Middle Eastern or this right. should be Turkish. Or Spanish. And of Ex- course, the French composers are very good at faking Spanish music. They are excellent <laughs> at but it. But Massenet does a beautiful job. I mean, he really does incorporate 
a classical guitar yes, he and does. castanets. He does, it, and many castanets. And it works. But it doesn't sound, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't sound overdone or, or caricature-ish in the least. Right. Do you right. agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, it's very natural, I yes. think, the way he does it. But the other interesting thing about this is it is a 20th century piece. 1910. It's only, it's only about 15 years prior to Turandot, which, of course, is Puccini's 20th century piece. Do you hear... Anything of the 20th century, even the early 20th century in, in the I score? hear it stylistically mm-hmm. uh, in the way um, Don, Quixote, Don Quixote speaks, in the way the characters interact with each other. I know, um, you know, we have very set pieces. There are duets, there are ensembles. There is, but to me, the piece feels very 20th century in how in how particularly the bass, Don Quixote, um, exposes all of his material Mm -hmm. and his interactions with Pancho or with Sanza or with Dulcinea. To me, it's... it's, um, The recitatives don't come across to me as recitatives as we consider recitatives. They come across very naturally, Mm -hmm. very conversationally, which is closer Very to the 20th, 20th century, century than, in yeah, my mind. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. it's it's a it's an attempt. You know, my thought when I say 20th century is, you know, so many composers who attempted to to show what we're doing here, just as it is happening. And and I and I find that interesting with that particular story set in the Middle Ages, as it is. It's almost anachronistic stylistically, mm-hmm. in a beautiful way, to to where it's set. Uh, given your enthusiasm, I think you're looking forward to conducting it. Very, very much. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. One would think that since France borders Spain, audiences wouldn't think that Spanish culture would be considered exotic. But in the case of Carmen, the exoticism was to be found in the culture of the Spanish gypsies, something that French audiences knew very little about. In terms of Don Quixote, the exoticism is to be found in the fact that we're both in Spain and experiencing the turn of the 17th century. The opera is also about village life. It's set in rural Spain, Again, something that was not part of the everyday experience of the lives of most audience members. So the question is, how did Massonet capture the feel of Don Quixote through purely musical means? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. The first thing that hits our ears in the score as having a kind of Spanish flair is the entrance of the character Dulcinea at the beginning of the opera. She's standing on her balcony being serenaded by admirers below, and then she breaks into song. But the song begins with a kind of cadenza, the voice completely unaccompanied, freely floating. This is in imitation of a kind of flamenco riff, something that Massenet might have experienced hearing by a touring group out of Madrid, let's say. Within the notes that she sings, there are some interesting variations on intervals that give the music a modal flavor, exactly the character of actual flamenco music. Listen. Mm-hmm. 
notice how one part of the passage uses an E natural, the other part uses an E flat. You can't have both E natural and E flat in a key signature, and that's what gives this passage its unusual flavor, as if Dulcinea is improvising her music on the spot. E natural. E flat. E natural. Following this, we get a combination of plucked strings and harp accompanying the main tune of her aria. This conjures up the sound of a guitar in our minds, and then the voice enters. One other thing, that little ornament we heard in the melody. What if Massonet had not used the ornament at all, but just used the main note of the melody? Or with the accompaniment. Well, frankly, it just sounds a little dull without the ornament and not quite as, well, Spanish. Massonet obviously knew very well that Spanish folk singers or flamenco artists use lots of ornaments in their improvised songs, and so he throws it in for color. Again, Massonet is faking it. He's not Spanish. He probably doesn't know much more about Spanish folk music or flamenco than any other composer of his time, but by making discreet choices, he gets that flavor just right. Here's another wonderful example from Don Quixote's serenade to Dulcinea a little later in the first act. It's just in the orchestral introduction, and Massonet gets an incredible sense of exotic color just by adjusting one note in the major scale. It's in the key of A-flat major, which sounds like this. In order to get a different flavor out of this key, he raises the sixth degree of the scale by a half step, and we get this. Sounds a little odd, a little exotic. It should, because following standard Western musical practice, it's wrong. It's a, it's a kind of cross between a major and a minor scale. But in this context, it sounds exotic, distant, foreign, Spanish.
So let's turn quickly to resources from Massenet's Don Quixote, and I do mean quickly because, quite frankly, there just isn't that much out there. For instance, there's no decent biography of Massenet. Well, there's one, but it's just not very good. We're all still waiting for the definitive biography of the man who dominated the last quarter of the 19th century in French opera. However, there are two excellent CDs that you must try to get your hands on if you can. The oldest one is on the London Decker label, with Régine Crespin as Dulcinea, Nicolai Gyarov as Quixote, and Gabriel Bacquier as Sancho Panza. Casimir's Cord conducts the L'Orchestre de la Suisse Romande. This recording dates from 1977 towards the end of Crespin's career, but the singing is overall wonderful. It sounds great, and you get the extra bonus of Massenet's orchestral work, Sen Alsacienne, conducted by Richard Bonning. The other recording, and the one that I prefer, but only by a small margin, is this one from EMI, conducted by Michel Plasson, with the Orchestre du Capitole de Toulouse. Teresa Berganza is the stunning Dulcinea in this recording, José Fandam is Quixote, and Alain Fondari is Sancho Panza. I love this recording because Plasson gets just the right flavor out of the music, and the singing is really wonderful, characterful, and idiomatic. No one has made a better case for this score. Luckily for all of us, there is one excellent DVD of a production of Don Quixote from Trieste. This is a production starring the bass Giacomo Prestia, Laura Polvarelli is the Dulcinea, and Alessandro Corbelli is Sancho Panza. Now, this is a modern production, but that doesn't bother me at all with this particular opera. It really works quite wonderfully. The playing and singing are terrific in this production, and I know this and the two recordings will be plenty of resources for you to find in order to get familiar with Don Quixote. In Massenet's opera Don Quixote, you'll hear many different elements, arias, ensembles, choruses, and you'll hear a number of different styles of music. Despite all these disparate elements, we see and hear Don Quixote as a compact, unified piece of art that despite, or perhaps because of, these individual elements, tells a single story in a uniquely powerful way. Isn't that the way all art should work, and all operas? Absolutely. And Don Quixote, even though it's a neglected masterpiece, is no exception. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.